It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beach read. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. It's impossible to understand 9-11 and the U.S. response to it without knowing how and why Al-Qaeda formed. Today, we're looking back at events in the Middle East before 9-11. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. We're back together again. Dylan, insert some sort of celebratory music here. It feels so good to be back. It was a long time. Two weeks is a long time. It was a long time. I mean, I really enjoyed my vacation. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. But it is nice to be back working together because our guest hosts were fantastic. But I missed you. I missed you, too. I felt a little bit more wound up. You've talked before about how having these conversations scheduled for us is like therapy. Mm -hmm. I definitely saw that because I found myself reacting a little bit more, I don't know, intensely or something to the news, especially last week. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. I was just like frustrated and it didn't feel like I was thinking about it in a like holistic and productive way. I was just I was just getting fired up by tweets and 
news articles and the like. And there was lots of that to do. So before we get to our second installment in our 9-11 series, what are you thinking about the president's tweets, especially as they relate to one LeBron James? I try not to think about the president's tweets as much as humanly possible, but he makes it so difficult. We did an Instagram live before the show, and it's like he's in this toxic sludge of like being fired up about the Mueller investigation, being on the campaign trail, which he is just at his worst at these rallies. And that is hard to do because he is already not that great. So it just uh, brings out the worst in him, I think, where we are with this season And what makes me so upset about this LeBron James stuff, besides the fact that it is wildly racist, just so racist. So he called Don Lemon the dumbest man on television. Is that what he said? Yes. He said that before about him, too. It seems to be like his his sort of nickname without a capital letter attached to it. And then he basically said LeBron James was so dumb that he made Don Lemon look smart. And he's mad because they asked him. And they baited LeBron James, sort of. This whole, like, what would you say to him? Well, I wouldn't sit down with him, sort of exchange. Which, when my husband told me, I was like, good for you, LeBron James. But what makes me so mad about this, and our listener, Bren, sent us a voice memo about his thoughts about this, too, and I totally agree, which is it's it just pushes this really, really positive thing LeBron James has done. The school is amazing. It has so many amazing components of it, his new school in Akron, Ohio for at-risk kids. I think it's fourth and fifth grade. Like, they support the parents. They have job fairs. They have food banks. The kids are there from eight to five. The teachers have all, like, built-in psychological support. Like, everything's paid for. Everybody gets a bike. Everybody goes to college. I mean, it's just the layers of hope and thoughtfulness, the fact that it's a public school, not a charter school. Like, I just cannot say enough about the amazing work LeBron James is doing with this school, which is part of the reason he's been in the media so much. And I hate that the story has just become our president said something really racist about this man doing really amazing work in his community. It just it sucks. I agree. And I wish that we could have some stories where people just aren't asked about President Trump. I've been corresponding with lots of women running for office who are going to join us in the next couple of months. I'm so excited about our schedule between now and November, just FYI. In all of those exchanges, I tell people we are not going to ask you to comment on the president because the president is not the center of the universe. He's important. He matters. But I don't want every conversation to turn on, what do you think about Donald Trump? That is a ridiculous way to live our lives. There is so much to talk about. You're right in this story. Innovation in education is hard. Yes. And LeBron James has done something not only unbelievably generous, but very, very difficult. And that could serve as a model. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about what would happen if we learn everything we can learn from this school and it starts being replicated throughout the United States. There's something really exciting there. I hate that there was an invitation to bring the president into this conversation and then the president couldn't help but take it and and take us down this really ugly path. I also don't think LeBron James is wrong. I do think he's trying to use sports to divide people and he wants to use any sort of flashpoint or cultural shortcut to be divisive, particularly race. And, you know, I think that, and for better or for worse, whether you love sports or hate sports, there are a lot of racial components to it. And, you know, I think that that's so unfortunate. I was reading an article about the one-year anniversary of Charlottesville and how he has just, nothing's changed. Like, he is unapologetically using racial division to fuel his administration 
to fuel his cult of personality. And it is so disgusting. And I'm so discouraged that he seems to suffer no consequences for the way he talks about race and talks about our fellow Americans. And it's just, it's so disturbing. But I think what you're saying too about he, everything has to be, but he's the center of the universe and everything about him has to be political. I was reading this thing that popped in my husband's Twitter feed about, you know, Topher Grace, the actor who was on the 70s show. Mm-hmm. He dated Ivanka, like went on a couple of dates with her in the 90s. And in this interview where somebody asked him about it, he was like, well, it wasn't a political statement. I'm like, what are we doing when this man who went on a couple dates with Ivanka Trump in the 90s has to say, well, it wasn't political at the time. Of course it wasn't political. You went on a There's date, a date. <laughs> with Ivanka in the 90s. Like you could feel like he was he was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get, you know, torn apart on Twitter because I had a minor association with Ivanka Trump. And I just thought that's this we have we have got this is ridiculous because the Trump administration makes the stakes so high with separating people at the border, with reversing fuel standards. Everything starts to feel like a matter of life and death. Then everything even minorly related to them feels like the final judgment on your character or something. And it's just, it's out of control. It's out of control. And everything is not life or death. And one thing that is definitely not life or death is who gets to be an opinion writer for the New York Times. Truth. Have you been watching this controversy about Sarah Zhang? Yes. I'm encouraged by the, again, in this current media environment, particularly with related to race and the Trump administration, all these things, that the New York Times, who are not perfect, seem to have like, take a minute took a breath, and I think made the right call. So for those of you not following this story, Sarah Zhang was hired as the editorial board of the New York Times. Then, I mean, I think I think it's okay to say a bunch of trolls, don't you? I mean, she was already pretty popular among the trolls because she's a female tech writer. Put together a lot of sort of tweets she'd said that, that seemingly, especially when you look at them in a bunch, seemed very anti-white. But... They edited them and put them together in threads that did not exist. In the moment, she was being satirical. She was being extreme to highlight the extremeness of other people's tweets about race. And instead of firing her or saying, no, we changed our mind and backing out quickly in the, in the face of such controversy, the New York Times said, nope, we see what she was doing here. She stays. It's a really hard story to talk about because it feels like a series of landmines. Mm-hmm. I would like us to just generally do better on Twitter. Oh, and Lord. so even understanding the context of many of her tweets, it it makes me sad. However, you know, we are two women talking in the political space. We do not get a fraction no. of the misogyny and harassment that women who are in the tech space get. We don't get a fraction of what a lot of women in the political space get. I was thinking about this as I was preparing. There were really two times since we started Pantsuit Politics when I thought what was happening rose to the level of harassment and really only one time that I for a second felt a sense of fear. Mm. That is nothing compared to what someone like Sarah Zhang has combated. Yeah. And so I got a lot of grace for how she chooses to respond to that. Again, we are making too much of this. Most of the controversies about journalism are such a privileged conversation. We could just zoom out for a second and say, how lucky are we in America that we have a free press? 
How lucky are we in America that we have time to care this fervently about who is or is not on the editorial board of the New York Times? And that's where I come out on the media as, as we chase our tails around talking about media and media talks about itself and the president talks about media and people who have historically found media frustrating talk about that frustration. Listen, it is a beautiful thing that we have all these different places to air out that conversation. Mm-hmm. I understand if it frustrates you that you feel like the media has an end for President Trump and you feel like outlets like the New York Times have it in for white people. You have lots of other places to go to have that conversation. And thank goodness that we live in a country where people can criticize our president. There are so many places in the world where that cannot happen. Right. So I just would love to turn the heat down on these discussions. It's not that it's unimportant. It is significant that Sarah Zhang has been hired by the New York Times editorial board. It's a, it's significant that her background is technology and they're recognizing the importance to add that on, you know. It's significant that she's a young Asian-American woman. It's significant that she's endured this kind of online harassment. And, and the way she has chosen to respond to it is significant. But all of those things pale in comparison to a list of thousands of other things that we could productively focus our energy and attention on. Speaking of turning down the heat, with regards to his statements on the press, I am so bothered. Bothered is not a strong enough word. So disturbed by these videos of the people screaming at the press at these rallies. What is his end game? That's a great question. I've been watching conservative conversation about this topic. I think the general consensus among people who support the president and or felt that Fox News was desperately needed because everything else was liberal echo chamber. I think the consensus is he's just giving voice to something that's existed for a long time. And of course, he's hyperbolic. He's doing what he does about everything. But it's not that big of a deal, and it's not new. And I would be inclined to accept some of that logic, but for all of the reporting about what people are doing following his statements. Yeah. You know, I have said before that I feel like Trump is not a leader. I think that's false because he he's not a good leader, but he's got lots of followers. Yep. And he has people behaving in ways that are shocking to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about my conservatism as being about individual responsibility. And so I am I am always kind of like, eh, we don't have a president who said the right thing in this circumstance. People can still behave in the right way. But that is clearly not the case. Yep. Yep. I don't want to say, you know, leading is constantly speaking to the lowest common denominator, but you at least have to be aware of it. You at least have to talk with some sort of understanding of how certain people could interpret your words. He lives in this weird space in which he simultaneously only gets excited by words, but refuses to acknowledge their power. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. he gets psyched up about what people say about him all the time, but then we're supposed to blow off everything he says. And I don't understand how we're supposed to exist in that space. You know, that's what I hear most often from you know, the people in my life who I believe are reasonable and moderate and who voted for him and who are becoming increasingly defensive, as they should be, 
um, about their vote. And, you know, it's this, we just got to blow them off. How long can we maintain that narrative? I'm so disturbed by this. I don't understand when he would be happy if they never criticized him, if CNN off, went off the air, if we just did, if we only had state media and he got to explain everything to us. Does that not bother any? Even if you agree with him, even if you think that everything he does is fantastic, what happens when he screws up? Are we living in a world where he's incapable of screwing up? Because I want to talk about that. If we're not, who's going to ask the questions? Who's going to report? Because he's not going to share. He openly says, I don't screw up and I wouldn't tell you if I did. So who would do that? Who would say, or are we just, you know, I mean, I guess really, honestly, we're living, some people do live in a world, a QAnon world in which he is the savior. He is infallible. And he is the only, you know, hope and voice of truth in a world in which every, literally everyone else is conspiring against him. So, I mean, I guess in that world, totally false world, that's the only thing that makes sense. I wanted to share this opening from Brett Stevens' op-ed in the New York Times where he he describes Trump having blood on his hands, essentially for what Stevens sees is happening to the media. He writes, the voice, if I had to guess, belongs to that of a white American male in late middle age. The accent is faintly Southern. The manner taunting, but relaxed. It's also familiar. I'm pretty sure he's left a message on my office number before, but the last voicemail left almost no impression. Not this time. Hey, Brett, what do you think? Do you think the pen is mightier than the sword or that the AR is mightier than the pen? He continues, I don't carry an AR, but once we start shooting you effers, you aren't going to pop off like you do now. You're worthless. The press is the enemy of the United States people. And you know what? Rather than shoot me. And then he goes on to unleash just a diatribe of racial slurs. Mm. I think it's really helpful. And I think this is true of Sarah Zhang. I think it's really helpful when members of the press lay bare what they're exposed to. I think the videos that Jim Acosta posted are valuable. I think her saying, you saw my tweets, now you get to see the tweets I see, and him sharing stuff like this is really helpful. I think people need to understand the depths of the ugliness out there. People like me need to understand it. I need this Mm -hmm. because I do tend to think, oh, we're better than anybody listening to him. It can't be that the president does a campaign rally making fun of CNN and it translates to this kind of behavior. And and I think that's another reason that your point about people videoing what happens at community pools mm-hmm. um, to our neighbors is really important. As voyeuristic as I feel sometimes seeing this kind of information, it does help me better grip come to grips yep. with the fact that what he says does matter. He is exercising a level of influence that I previously thought was unfathomable. But yep. here it is. Here we are. Yep. And I don't have a good answer for what to do about it. I honestly don't, except for to, you know, support the press and defend them when people criticize the press and talk about them as if they're less than human, talk about them as even le- not even less than human, as if they're not American citizens. That's what kind of blows my mind, as if these people aren't Americans. They are Americans. How can you be an enemy of the United States people when you are the United States people? Like, I just, but, you know, again, because these people are living in a reality in which 
there's like a secret civil war going on. And there is a, a substantial proportion of the United States population who are, you know, citizens in name only, but enemies of the country. And he perpetuates that. I just, he perpetuates it. It's so, and Sarah Huckabee standing or standing up there and refusing to say the press aren't the enemy of the, I don't know how, I don't know how she does her job. I really don't. To stand in, to work with those people, because that's what blows my mind. I mean, listen, we all watch West Wing. Like they work together closely in and out every day. And I think that the intensity of that toxicity has just, I, I feel so sorry for everybody that works on both sides of the press in the White House right now, because this is no longer a congenial environment in which we're kind of pressing each other, but we're friends. I mean, even in Congress, I think that that's evaporated to a certain extent that it always existed, which is we like each other and we support each other if we disagree. Like, I just, I can't imagine how awful it feels there right now. Well, it's awful and it's paralyzing yep. because the stakes are so high about everything. They're high about nothing. Yep. That's why we don't see any congressional action on separating kids at the border because it's just another day up there. Yep. You know, and, and when we are ripping into each other about Sarah Zhang's years old tweets, we cannot really know when something rises to the level of heated discourse yep. because everything is there. Well, one thing that I wanted to highlight before we move on um, is a decision from a federal district court about campaign finance, which seems like a far bridge from where we were, but I don't think it is. And maybe as we get into the facts of this, you'll see why. This is a case filed by CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. CREW is very busy these days, and they do (laughs) very interesting work. And if you're not following them on Twitter, it's worth doing that to keep up with all of the different ways CREW is trying to be a watchdog uh, for what's happening in our government. So they sued the Federal Election Commission and Crossroads Grassroots Policy Strategies. You probably are familiar with Crossroads GP. Yes. This decision came out on Friday evening. And I just want to tell you a little bit about the facts here because I think they're really interesting. In August of 2012, American Crossroads, which is part of Crossroads GPS, affiliated with it, held an event in Tampa, Florida that 70 people attended. Carl Rove was there and he told the audience about a multi-million dollar matching challenge. He said that an unnamed out-of-state donor called him about the 2012 Ohio Senate race between Sherrod Brown and Josh Mandel. The donor said that he liked Mandel and would give a $3 million matching challenge to use toward a $6 million budget to spend on this race in Ohio. At this event in Tampa, about $1.3 million were raised. Now, Crew is saying this event was a fundraiser. Crossroads GPS says it was a meeting. (laughs) A meeting where we talked about only raising money. Cool. So also at this meeting event fundraiser, Crossroads GPS showed 14 advertisements, some of which were running, some which were planned to run, a couple of which never actually ran anywhere. Eleven of those were produced by Crossroads, and attendees were solicited for contributions to Crossroads after seeing the ads as a demonstration of what they are doing and what they can do. 
Okay, this anonymous donor who just called Carl Rove to say, hey, I really like that Josh Mandel, and I'd give you some money to spend on the race. Uh, just was sitting around his house and was like, I'm going to call up Carl Rove because I totally have his number. Also, I have $3 million laying around. i got to figure out something to do with it. He ended up giving lots more than $3 million, and Crossroads ended up spending $6.3 million in that race in Ohio. None of the 10 reports that Crossroads was required to file with the FEC detailing its independent expenditures, and that is a technical term which I'm not going to get into today or we'll be here for hours, Um, none of those reports identified this seriously generous anonymous donor. Okay, in 2012... Crossroads spent over $17 million in independent expenditures without identifying where that $17 million came from. This was not the first time Crossroads had done some deficient reporting. Not the first Imagine time. The, that. Yeah, not the first time the FEC had to reach out to Crossroads about that reporting. This time, though, when the FEC reached out, Crossroads said, look, disclosure is only required if contributions are given for the express purpose of the independent expenditure. In other words, if I say, Carl Rove, I really like this guy. I'm going to give you some money. But I don't say, use this money to run particular ads for this Senate race. Then my name doesn't ever have to come up in the FEC reports. That's their argument. Mm. That, that you have to specifically identify the purpose of the money, and that purpose has to be a purpose that would require you to categorize the money as an independent expenditure in an FEC report. Okay, that all sounds kind of ridiculous, but it turns on some very specific statutory language, and this whole area of the law is highly technical. Crew files a complaint against Crossroads with the FEC about all of this money connected to the Tampa event. Remember, this is 2012. We're getting a court decision on it in 2018. The wheels of justice do not always move at rapid pace. FEC's Office of General Counsel reviewed Crew's complaint and recommended that the FEC find in favor of Crossroads. They bought that argument about specificity. Mm. They also recommended dismissing the FEC's own concerns about the filing in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. The FEC commissioners at the time deadlocked 3-3 on those recommendations. So we end up in court eventually, and the court in a very long, this opinion is like 113 pages. Dang. The court says the FEC is not, through its current regulations, facilitating congressional intent about campaign finance law. And here's what I think is the really important sentence from the opinion, if you can choose only one out of a monster opinion. The challenged regulation facilitates such financial routing, blatantly undercutting the congressional goal of fully disclosing the sources of money flowing into federal political campaigns and thereby suppressing the benefit intended to accrue from disclosure. Mm. So it undercuts the whole system, basically. Yes. When you have all of these ways to get around identifying these donors, you've just lawyered your way out of doing everything that Congress passed a law to try to get done. Right. Which makes sense when you look at the facts of this case. I don't think anyone intends for you to be able to say, hey, Crossroads GPS, I want to give you millions of dollars Do with it what you will so that my name never has to be in an FEC report. 
So everyone expects this decision to be appealed, but it is a very significant development that we wanted to share today. Now we're going to share our moment of gratitude. We shifted, um, as you all remember, a little while back from doing compliment the other side to gratitude. And my gratitude um, for something about our country right now is our interstate highway system, which carried me and my family safely across Tennessee, Georgia, and South Carolina and back. And listen, I know that the interstate highway system is not only has not only benefited the country, it has um, allowed car travel and it has divided communities. And I get all that. And I think that's valid. But something doesn't have to be all good for us to be grateful for it. And I'm grateful for it, the interstate highway system. And I've read a little bit of the history. It was super interesting um, about how long we've been working at it. And did you know it's the Eisenhower interstate highway system, Beth? No, how interesting. Because he was the really the one that um, pushed for it and really took it to the next level. So you know, I'm grateful for our interstate highway system that allows us to see this big, beautiful country more easily. I love that. I am grateful for Jenny Hill. I started looking for someone on the Democratic side of the aisle to compliment because I know that some of you are missing that compliment the other side feature. And our gratitude can always extend in that direction. So I wanted to do that this week. I do not know if Jenny Hill is a Democrat because she ran in a nonpartisan race, but she was identified as one in one article I read. I just couldn't confirm it. Anyway, Jenny Hill was just elected to the school board in Hamilton County, Tennessee, which is the Chattanooga area. She has two children and owns a tech company. And I loved her super positive message in this campaign. Her website talks about elevating students, elevating teachers, elevating schools and planning. And I really loved how she dealt with the issue of public school versus other options. She writes, every school in Hamilton County should be a high performing school. Magnet schools and charter schools are great options for some students, but we shouldn't rely on them to bring excellence to our districts. Every zone school should be a school parents can trust to prepare their kids for the future. Here, here. I thought that was beautifully done. And she also notes that her job didn't exist when she was in school and that we need to give students a strong foundation and a love of learning to prepare them for new opportunities. I just thought all of it was brilliantly done, such a great example of how you can make a big difference at the local level. And this is just the kind of message that I want to hear more of. So congratulations, Jenny Hill and the people of Hamilton County, Tennessee. I think you've got yourselves a very good new school board member. Next up, we are continuing our conversation about 9-11, specifically the road to 9-11 and the formation of Al-Qaeda. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped and I closed my eyes and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues. And I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to. Or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So we are picking up our second episode in the 9-11 series. In our first episode, we walked back through the day of the attacks in detail. Now we're going to travel backwards in time to talk about how we got to 9-11. So this week, we're going to focus on what was happening in the Middle East and specifically the formation of Al-Qaeda. Then next week, we're going to turn to events in America before 9-11. And then after that, our series will go to after 9-11. How did we respond in America? And that's where we're going to get to discussing the connections we see between that response and our present day policies and politics. So there's the roadmap for our series. So as we were setting up this particular segment, Beth did all this amazing research in the 9-11 Commission report. And she was like, okay, let's start in the late 70s with Afghanistan and the Soviets entering Afghanistan. I'm like, good idea. No, wait, let's talk Let's start with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, <laughs> just a little bit further back than that. 
Um, but I think this is really important. So after September 11th and all the videos celebrating the attacks, Osama bin Laden frequently refers to the 80 years of humiliation suffered in the Muslim world. So 80 years is really important back from 9-11. So what happened then? Okay, well, what happened was the fall of the Ottoman Empire after World War I. Um, the people in the Middle East uh, picked the wrong side in World War I and, spoiler alert, World War II. And so the Ottoman Empire fell and all it began this period of colonization where the British and other colonizers basically created sort of the modern Middle East as we know it. And when it really started to come together for me as I started just Googling, when was Saudi Arabia formed? When was Syria formed? When was um, Lebanon formed? All these different countries. Um, you know, World War II, or excuse me, World War One ended in like 1918. And you start Googling this and it's like 1920, 1920, 1919, 1922. Like it's so intense to realize, yeah, they really just, drew some random lines after World War One, with no concern for tribal loyalties, religious loyalties. In fact, I don't think it was just obliviousness. I think they were purposely sowing conflict into the fabric of these nations so that they would be easier to colonize. Right. A lot of those lines were drawn around access to natural resources mm -hmm. so that Western nations could take all the oil out of these countries and profit from it. And the countries themselves remained entrapped in poverty in many cases. I mean, it it's an ugly history to come to grips with as a person who lives in Western society. And I think that those in particular strands are what we're going to see over and over again, starting after World War One. You're going to see Western countries colonizing, creating a massive amount of just resentment and anger, specifically with regards to groups being put together that were not together before, with regards to taking natural resources and leaving the countries behind worse off. I, I, I'll never forget a listener who told us, we were talking about developing words and she, developing areas of the developing countries and de developing areas of the world. And she was like, they're not developing. It's not like they're sluggish. We took all their stuff and used it to prop up our economies. <laughs> like, that's why they're behind, because we took the labor for free and the resources for ourselves. And I just think that's such an important thing to keep in mind as we move forward through this timeline. And none of that means that al-Qaeda had a point mm -hmm. or that we think America is to blame for the 9-11 attacks. And I want to be really clear about that up front. It is important to understand why things have happened the way they have, because that's the value of history, right? Let's go back and understand this so that we can look at our future differently. So let's talk about Afghanistan for a little bit. And one of the things that really jumped out at me, Sarah, as I was doing this research is that I, we've grown up learning that the Afghani government is is not stable, right? And almost saying that in a way like, oh, if they could just get it together, then we could finally bring our troops home. It jumped out at me that our country, America right now, feels so unstable to me. We have the same form of government that we've had since our country was founded. In Afghanistan, the game has changed over and over mm -hmm. and over. And they... They just haven't gotten a period of stability, a period where everything, you knew who was in charge, you knew what the rules were, and things can move along nicely. I mean, that they just haven't had that. Well, and with re with regards to what, we're, what you were just saying about the history of colonization, we didn't start it either. Afghanistan has a long history of occup occupation from Alexander the Great to Genghis Khan and then the British in the 1800s, but even before World War I. So it's not like occupying other countries is new. Right. Specifically to Afghanistan. 
And so when we're talking about Afghanistan, you know how I love geography. In terms of land mass, Afghanistan is a little bit smaller than the state of Texas. And it has about 3 million more people living there than the state of Texas does. So, Sarah, you want to talk about World War II in Afghanistan, and then I'll maybe bring us into the Soviet occupation? Yeah, so when when you're talking about the changing forms of government, so Afghanistan, after these sort of different occupations, they have a kingdom, they're ruled by uh, several kings and princes, you have all these countries with lines drawn after World War I, and then in World War II, because of these terrible relationships that many of these countries had with the British and the French because of the colonization, they align themselves with Nazi Germany. Picked the wrong side once again in world in the world wars. And what's really interesting to me as I was doing some of this research is that many Middle Eastern scholars point to um, this t- period of time during World War One as the beginnings of the intense anti-Semitism in the Middle East. That it wasn't necessarily the way um, the sort of conflict between Muslims and Jews was not baked in in the way I think I assumed it was, but that it w- a lot of it was an import from Nazi Germany. So World War II ends. These countries, um, after aligning themselves with Nazi Germany, the colonizing countries, British and the French, they're out of resources. They spend it all on World War II. So they start to abandon the region because they are totally depleted after the World War. And that's when you start to see some Efforts at modernization, you have Ataturk in Turkey, you have modernization efforts in Egypt, including um, very what's very very much seen as westernization, the freedom of women to study, stop wearing religious garbs. I mean, the, the role of women within these societies, either during efforts of modernization or um, sort of fundamentalist conservative pushes back the other direction is central. Like it's a central theme throughout everything. Also central to this story, though, is that when we hear that, I think we go, oh, the good guys were in charge. No, it's always more complicated (laughs) than that, because very often the government's rulers, leaders who were pushing this westernization were also terribly corrupt or Mm -hmm. incredibly repressive of press and and uh, people who opposed them. And so it's never as clear as. Oh, oh, the good guys are in charge and the bad guys are opposing them. There's always a lot more tension than that at work. Yeah. And so not surprisingly, as you have these efforts at the modernization and then also repressive efforts with regards to any sort of criticism or opponent of or opposition to the government, you start to see Islamic fundamentalist movements. And what many people see is the precursor to Al-Qaeda, which is the Society of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt which was pushing very hard against many of the modernization efforts in Egypt at this time. So after World War II, the other massive change to the region, of course, is the United Nations partition of Israel. In 1948, which is the next year when the British left, you have the first Arab-Israeli war. And despite being massively outnumbered, the Israelis won. I heard one scholar describe it as like, they just didn't have anywhere else to go. So (laughs) they were going to fight Harder. We see this a lot in in conflicts. So following what was seen as a humiliating defeat, all these heads of states of the Arab countries that fought in this war and then lost were either deposed or assassinated. And then what came next, you know, I think with each sort of wave of change, you hope that the leadership gets more democratic or um, 
more open and a more liberal society. That's not what happened. What came next was even more anti-Western, more pro-socialist. You have Nasser and Egypt. And with this alignment with the Soviets, then you really have, you're starting to secure the relationship between the United States and Israel because the United States is obviously anti-Soviet. So they're going to pour money into any um, thing that secure, particularly Israel as seen securing their um, interest in the region. And then you also have them not for us, us, them, us, the United States government, not for the first or last time, pouring money into these Islamic fundamentalist movements. They were giving money to the Muslim Brotherhood to oppose Nasser because he was socialist. And you're going to hear more like that as yep. we go along. That's the theme. Put a pin and in And in that. the meantime, the Soviet Union is growing its influence in Afghanistan, hoping to cement a pro-Soviet government there and eventually build a Soviet state that is communist, where the Russian government, is a, the Soviet Union's government, is able to take all these resources out of Afghanistan. So on December 24th, 1979, a, a huge number of Soviet troops just invade Afghanistan, essentially, and start to occupy it. And there was already a anti or a pro-Soviet revolution that happened with Afghanistan, but they just followed on the back end and and basically propped up this People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. So that begins the Soviet war in Afghanistan in 1979, which is at, happening at the same time as this massive shift in Iran. And here is Carrie Anderson, our resident Middle East expert, talking about these other major changes also happening in the Middle East in 1979? Three major things happen. One, there's, there's the Islamic Revolution in Iran. So the United States loses Iran as one of our pillars of our policy in the Middle East, and therefore Saudi Arabia becomes even more important. Also, Saudi Arabia now has this clear competitor in Iran. Iran wants to export its revolutionary ideology, which is in direct contradiction to how Saudi Arabia sees its role. So that's a major thing. Also, some Saudi extremists take over the Grand Mosque in Mecca, and there's this whole siege. They're eventually um, killed or, or taken out. Um, but that, in response to that, the Saudi establishment, which is the al-Saud royal family, is the government. And then in alliance, so the, the Saudi family has long had this alliance with the Wahhabi clerics, which is also an important thing in understanding all 9-11 and everything else. Um, and so together, they respond to that partly be, by becoming more religiously and culturally conservative. So now, listen, I mean, this is not all perfectly aligned. Khomeini is Persian, not Arab. He is Shia, not Sunni. But the same message of Islamic fundamentalism is there, which is the Western influences are downfall. Um, they are tearing apart the family by allowing more freedom for women. And we need to go back to this era of pure Islamic, pure Islam and this sort of um, myth of the golden age idea and blaming Israel, blaming the United States for all the problems in these nations. So you have the Islamic group in Egypt, which is sort of a in relation to the Islamic Brotherhood, led by Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who issued the fatwa calling for the assassination of Egypt's then president, Anwar Sadat, who was killed in 1981. So they're pushing more fundamentalism. They're starting to act. Sadat is assassinated. Egypt cracks down hard on all these fundamentalists and many flee to where? Afghanistan. 
And Sarah, you know, you mentioned it's not perfectly aligned because they're happening in different states, but I think that really calls back to your first point that the lines in the Middle East were not drawn with consideration for ethnicity or mm-hmm. religion or the the things that matter to people groups in the Middle East. And the territory itself is relatively cohesive, right? So you've got Afghanistan that's about the size of Texas. You've got Saudi Arabia, which is a little bigger than Alaska. These are two of the larger land masses in the Middle East, right? And so it's a lot of people, but geographically, it's a pretty small area. If I'm sitting in Kentucky and the Soviet Union has just invaded Virginia, it's going to matter to me. And so I think we have to keep that in mind as well. It's really nice to be able to phone a friend and talk to Carrie when we have (laughs) questions about all these things. And sometimes her perspective is so helpful that it's good to bring it in. So we're going to bring her back in here to talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia and the connection to Al-Qaeda. Saudi Arabia was funding the spread of the sort of Salafi or we could say Wahhabi perspective. So, for example, funding madrasas, so schools in Pakistan. and a lot of this was was completely, I mean, I wouldn't say fine necessarily, but has nothing to do with terrorism. Um, you know, for example, like if you're a, a poor Pakistani family and your son can go to a madrasa and that's his only option to get any sort of an education, like you sent him, right? Um, so things like that all around the Muslim world, funding a lot of services, funding schools, funding mosques that taught this Salafi or Wahhabi perspective. Then in Afghanistan, combined with that, um, along with the United States, then they were also supporting the jihadis who were fighting against the Soviet Union. And Osama bin Laden and many of the initial al-Qaeda members were part of that. So after the Soviet Union withdraws in 1989, you then kind of have Afghanistan in shambles. Osama bin Laden went back to Saudi Arabia for a while. He was eventually exiled because of his extremist ideology. He goes back to Afghanistan. He collects the people who become Al-Qaeda, who are not solely Saudi. Like, I mean, uh, Ahmed Al-Zawahri was Egyptian, um, but a lot of them are Saudi. And they kind of come from this perspective. I think it's, it's important to note that the Saudi government, for example, eventually started referring to these people as deviants, um, people they feel deviated from the true Wahhabi or true Islamic religion. So a lot of Salafis, a lot of Saudis would say that these people were completely wrong, had twisted their religion. It is also true that Al-Qaeda's ideology was a mixture of this sort of Wahhabi theology with other versions of violent political Islam. So it's very complex. It's very nuanced, but that's kind of where we then get to Al-Qaeda. So as Sarah mentioned, people start leaving Saudi Arabia and going to Afghanistan, and it it takes on this life that the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan is a holy war. And the Mujahideen, which comes from an Arabic word meaning one engaged in jihad or struggle, include Abdullah Azam, who is known as the father of global jihad and becomes a mentor to Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden, who had grown up in Saudi Arabia, comes to Afghanistan to fight this war. He had met Abdullah Azam at university. It's very interesting. All of this remains very present. The Guardian just did an interview with Osama bin Laden's mother. And 
the Saudi Arabian government arranged this interview because they are trying so hard to distance themselves from 9-11 still today. Mm. I mean, this just happened a few days ago that this interview was published. And Osama bin Laden's family is very insistent that he was radicalized by Abdullah Azam at university. And so then he goes off to Afghanistan to fight in his 20s and oppose the Soviet forces. The Soviets respond with brutal force and the Afghan war starts to escalate. And this is when Abdullah Azam emerges as a really influential strategist. The idea of al-Qaeda initially, of what becomes al-Qaeda through the Mujahideen, is to have this vanguard. And that word is pretty important. We're going to put an article in the show notes about the idea of a vanguard. But it's essentially a small group of really committed people who are willing to sacrifice of themselves to move society into a new ideology and then to serve as, quote, the beating heart and deliberating mind for that society. So now Afghanistan is a perfect training ground for radicalized Muslims. People come pouring in from other places to fight. And Iran, Pakistan, China, and the United States are supporting these radicalized rebels. The United States actually created a covert program with the Pakistani Military Intelligence Service to radicalize Mujahideen Muslims against the Soviets, and they funneled billions of dollars of assistance and training to these folks. Mm. This war goes on for nine years. It kills about a million Afghan civilians, 90,000 Mujahideen fighters, 18,000 Afghani troops, and 14,500 Soviet soldiers die. And bin Laden sees the defeat of the Soviets as a win, right? This is the success of Islam prevailing. So this Mujahideen effort gives rise to al-Qaeda. As all this is happening, al-Qaeda's first meetings have minutes that were recorded from August of 1988. And there's less focus on the time about sort of the religious aspect of making Islam victorious, and lots of focus on just bureaucracy and organization and how to avoid some of the mistakes of the Mujahideen when they were fighting in Afghanistan. So they were going to build an intelligence component, a military committee, a financial committee, a political committee, and a media committee, all under this advisory council. And there were three principles that they really elevated at the beginning. The main problem for bin Laden, I think, with the Mujahideen is that they were never able, even after the Soviet troops with and we'll talk about this in a second, they were never able to really solidify power Mm -hmm. in the country. And he wanted to avoid that. And so he decided there are three things that they need. One, a propaganda arm to get their message out. A command and control mechanism to direct activities of subordinates in the organization. And the resilience to endure repeated challenges and great losses. He knew it was a long game from the beginning and wanted to build out basically a corporate terror structure that could weather all of that. He also started developing a financial support network that came to be known as the Golden Chain. The Golden Chain was supported by financiers in Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf states, and the donations flowed through charities and non-governmental organizations. So... He's trying to learn from these mistakes because what happens after the Soviets withdraw in 1989 is there's a civil war and Afghanistan is just decimated. The government is weak. The extremists and terrorists are entering the country. Soviet imperialism in Afghanistan sort of it inspires 
al-Qaeda, but they're trying to learn from these mistakes. Because afterwards, the Mujahideen tried to take control, but they couldn't unite the country. And that's where you start to see the formation of the Taliban, with the backing of the CIA and its Pakistani counterpart, the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate. So you have young Pashtun, and that is the people group in southern Afghanistan and northern Pakistan, which they're like tribesmen. They've been educated in madrasas. So they, Taliban is Pashto for students. So they create a movement around promising to restore stability and law after the civil war that's decimated everything. And then by the late 90s, the Taliban controls 90% of the country. Taliban law was drawn from Wahhabi doctrines espoused by Saudis who were funding the Pashtun madrasas. The regime was terribly oppressive. So the Taliban neglected basic governmental functions, social services, law and order type things, while banning music and television and requiring women to wear the head-to-toe burqa and jailing men whose beards were too short. Mm. Taliban was led by Mullah Omar. And this becomes significant because bin Laden goes home to Saudi Arabia after the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. He is outraged by Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait and the way in which U.S. troops are allowed to occupy Kuwait. And so he says to Saudi Arabia, let me bring my soldiers from Afghanistan. We'll defend Saudi Arabia and we'll defend Kuwait. But the Saudi government made its bet on the United States and rejected bin Laden. And so he moves to Sudan. He's eventually expelled from Sudan and makes his way back to Afghanistan, where he is somewhat reluctantly welcomed by Mullah Omar as long as he does not attack the United States. So he returns to Afghanistan in 1996. But along this time in the 90s, when he's in Saudi Arabia trying to sort of oppose the royal family because they won't let him fight the United States presence in Kuwait, you have al-Qaeda starting to attack. So on December 29, 1992, the first attack by al-Qaeda was carried out in Aden, Yemen, known as the 1992 Yemen Hotel bombings. Then in 1993, you have the truck bomb detonated below the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And the idea was that it would crash into the South Tower, bringing them both down. It didn't work. Obviously, six people died. Over a thousand were injured. He wasn't directly involved in that attack, but the architect of that attack had spent time in the al-Qaeda training camp. Al-Qaeda started to attack. Bin Laden comes back in 1996 and begins to really grow the organization. And he's shifting the approach of past Islamic fundamentalist groups. And here's Kerry again on that. Osama bin Laden, a lot of his ideology was to focus on what came to be called the far enemy. So while a lot of earlier versions of of violent forms of political Islam had focused on trying to overthrow governments in, say, Egypt or Saudi Arabia, Osama bin Laden said, look, we haven't been able to do that because the United States is supporting those. So we're going to attack the United States and to a lesser extent Europe in order to weaken those links so that then we can overthrow these domestic government. So bin Laden is appealing to people who are struggling with a modern world. And this next part is going to sound depressingly familiar, I think. He's promising a caliphate that offers a simplistic and nostalgic alternative to modern uncertainty. He's drawing on the work of an Egyptian scholar that says, basically, there are two ways to live, the true Islamic way and in this period of ignorance. And he believed that more Muslims were attracted to ignorance than pure Islam. And that's why you see that terrorism, um, and especially the terrorism espoused by bin Laden, was even more dangerous in many ways 
to Muslims mm-hmm. than to others because he 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 lumped Muslims who were in this period of ignorance in with everybody else. Here are all the conditions going on when bin Laden starts recruiting for al-Qaeda. All the fertile ground, the fertile ground upon which he walks. You have war-torn areas with some very reasonable anger mm-hmm. toward the Soviet Union and the United States. You've got a huge boom of dollars in the Middle East because of oil in the 1970s and early 1980s, followed by a deep economic plunge in the late 1980s. So for a while, the Middle East starts to get better, and you have some, especially Westernizers, trying to uh, bring a lot of wealth into these countries, but then it all kind of falls apart in the 1980s. You've got a very repressive view of women, and that has major economic consequences and major social consequences. You also have really high birth rates at this time and lowering rates of infant mortality, which creates huge populations of young men who have no reasonable expectation of employment. Many of these young men are trained in religious schools, so they don't have skills to go get jobs. And there are men with great educations, but they're in economically stagnant areas and jobs aren't available to them either. And so bin Laden, in his kind of corporate terror structure, has, has jobs for people and mm-hmm. has money to pay people for those jobs. So that's sort of the philosophical and economic and just environment in which he was thriving. But there's also just geographical reality. So the 9-11 Commission report points out that al-Qaeda was able to strengthen because of Pakistan's willingness to allow him to use Afghanistan as a base for al-Qaeda as an enterprise. Pakistan had an interest in the radicalization of young men in Afghanistan, hoping that radicalized Muslims would restore some order in Afghanistan and become a powerful ally for Pakistan. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh. God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky, 
and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. So Al-Qaeda builds out this really expansive business and financial network across the Middle East along with an Islamic army from countries throughout the Middle East. It was providing equipment and training assistance to groups all over the place and funding some terrorism in places like Somalia when the U.S. troops were there in 1992. And of course, as I was doing this research, I thought, remind me why we were in Somalia in 1992 when I was in, I think, the second grade. So I'm going to do a nightly nuance on our time in Somalia this week. Then we come to al-Qaeda starting, and bin Laden specifically, starting to get directly involved in terror attacks. So on August 7th, 1998, two highly coordinated and similar attacks were carried out. Two bomb-laden trucks drove into embassies, one in Nairobi, Kenya, and one in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. In Nairobi, 12 Americans, 201 others were killed, mostly Kenyans, and 5,000 people were injured. In Dar es Salaam, 11 people died. None were Americans. So these attacks were a very big deal, pretty surprising to the American people. And this starts to ramp up our intelligence efforts. And we'll talk more about that end next time. But I want you to understand that we weren't the only country concerned by these attacks. In 1999, Jordanian intelligence forces are starting to pick up chatter that indicates that al-Qaeda is just getting started and that the turn from the 90s to the year 2000, the millennium, was going to be a very dangerous time. They intercepted a call between a bin Laden ally and a Palestinian extremist in which the bin Laden ally said the time for training is over. And another person made the comment, the season is coming and bodies will pile up in sacks. This is a massive period of activity for intelligence and law enforcement. There were some disrupted plots. Lots of people were arrested. One component of the looming tower, which we've talked about a couple of times, the the book and series based on the book about U.S. CIA and FBI, that I found really interesting was this 
this idea from the CIA that the FBI was jeopardizing our big picture understanding by arresting what the CIA saw as bit players. Mm. And the FBI felt that the CIA was kind of approaching all of this as an intellectual exercise instead of like being out there getting people who were involved in this work. And so that's where our conversation um, next time will go. So we'll pick up at the bombing of the USS Cole, which I think really illustrates the perspective of U.S. intelligence and law enforcement. Talk about how Watergate, competition, and politics left us vulnerable to the 9-11 attacks. Next up, we are going to share what's on our mind outside of politics. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? You want to do vacation updates? We can, but mine feels like 10 years ago. Already? Man. Already. Well, last week was just really intense. I did not plan well. I scheduled so many things for last week, and so I was running constantly. But my vacation was lovely. We went with my mom and Aunt Liz and sister and her husband to Hilton Head Island. We shared a beach house. We basically got up, went to the beach, came back, got in the pool, took naps, went back to the beach. That was kind of what we did. So it was very relaxing while we were there. We had beautiful weather. We got to go out on a boat, which is my favorite thing. And I I once again tried to convince Chad Silvers that there's no reason for us to not live there. (laughs) There's not. There's not one. I think the same would get old. Otherwise, I'm all in. Um, We also went to the beach. It was amazing. Um, we went with friends of ours, friends of Beth's too, the, um, our friend Elizabeth from college and her family. She has um, four kids and our kids are getting old enough. Like her oldest is 14. So they were just free labor. So we did not clean up dinner any single night. They always cleaned up dinner. All the kids cleaned up dinner. They wiped the tables down. They swept the floor. They unloaded the dishwasher, loaded the dishwasher. So first of all, just the fact that like the kids are getting older and are like built in free labor. They look so much stuff to the beach. It's amazing. Um, all for that. Made it for a better vacation. And they're just getting old enough to, like, entertain themselves, which is amazing. So we spent time at the beach. We did have one rainy day, but they played a lot of video games with each other, which made them all very, very happy. And I read five books, five books. So happy with my book, Number of Red on Vacation. I felt like I was out of my own head and relaxed and also being productive, which is my favorite sensation. So I read um, Clock Dance, which was an Ann Bogle recommendation. Really enjoyed it. I read Queen of Hearts. Did not enjoy that as much. Wouldn't recommend that one. I read Summer Sisters by Judy Bloom. Have you ever read that book? No, I haven't. It is so good. It is what Queen of Hearts wanted to be. Like, it is such a beautiful, just friendship novel. Also, you know, Judy Bloom knows what the hell she's doing. So just tightly crafted, well-written, loved it. I read Fly Away Home, which is a Jennifer Weiner novel about a senator, like the wife of a senator who gets cheated on. Also very good. Love Jennifer Weiner. Have you read Good in Bed, her first book? No. It's like one of my top tens. You have to read it. I love it so much. I have this theory that you should just go read popular um, authors' first novels when they're like really super trying. Like Time to Kill is amazing, you know? Anyway, and then I read Sharp Objects, and that was the rain day. I read that in one day. Uh, the Jillian Flint. Did you read Gone Girl? I've I've read Sharp Objects. So, yeah. so creepy. So creepy. Are you watching the HBO show? No. <sighs> it's so creepy. And... I, I didn't want to watch it after reading the I mean, it's it's very well done, I think, but yeah. it is a, a step beyond where I want to be in the creepiness factor. And the reason, only reason I read her books, and I'm willing to take a few steps further into creepiness than I usually go, is because I think she has so many interesting things to say about femininity. And Absolutely. I think she uses her books to do that 
in such an amazing way. Ugh. She's so good. So good. I truly had trouble sleeping when I read Sharp Objects, which I know is an indicator for some people that it's awesome, right? And (laughs) lots of fun. That for me is not fun. Um, But I'm like, I'm such a wimp about stuff. So, you know, I have a a tender heart right here. (laughs) I just can't take it that far. But she is brilliant. There's no doubt about it. I did um, also, on the way down, I went to a girl's trip in Nashville, which was fun. Although being on a girl's trip in Nashville is becoming... Just, it, I feel like a social experiment because you it's don't. It's a walk. little cliche. It's right so now, cliche. <laughs> I was like, I would like announce. I'd be like, it's not a bachelorette trip. Do I get bonus for points for that? At least I'm not a bachelorette trip. I mean, it's just getting so ridiculous. But we had fun, and then on the way back through, um, we stopped in Atlanta, and I had my second Korean spa experience. I went to one in Orange County when I was for, there for podcast movement, and I just went to one in Atlanta. Beth, we are so going to a Korean spa. It is my new favorite activity. Spa does not do it justice. It's like a whole day activity. There are a million spa sauna options. There are sleeping rooms. There are basically cafeterias with Korean food. There is scrub downs that will make you feel like you are living a whole new life. I cannot say enough about Korean spas. I can't wait to go in with you. I mean, that means we'll basically be hanging out naked all day long, though, together. You're with a lot of naked people. How do you feel about that? That doesn't bother me. I don't have any modesty about nudity. That's just me personally. I would have felt very differently before I had children, but post-labor, Who whatever. cares? Well, and I just think it's so empowering and positive to be around a bunch of naked women. Follow me here. Because you just see the breadth of the human body. I don't know how we landed on mannequins, but nobody looks like that. It's not even a good average of what everybody looks like. Like, it's just phenomenal to see how different... How many different ways the female body can arrange itself? I love it. I'm all about it. I love Korean spas. So I had a fantastic vacation. I feel very relaxed and rejuvenated and ready to go. I do want to send a shout out on the vacation topic. So this this family that we travel with, we're going to try to plan a European vacation with our kids. So tapping the hive mind, those of you out there who have had successful trips to Europe that did not leave you broke. And we're also fun for kids. Like, we're open to locations as well. Send me those emails. I need y'all's feedback. So I did not read a bunch of books. I read pretty much everything Megan Garber has ever written on The Atlantic. I love Megan Garber's writing so much. I also read this article that I've been dying to talk to you about, about ketchup, and about how whether you are a dipper or a squeezer of ketchup says a lot about you. Mm. And here's what I really enjoyed that has made me want to change my ketchup methodology because I have always been a dipper. They talked about how squeezers of ketchup, so when you just, you know, pile it on top of your stack of fries. Oh, no, that's unacceptable. I'm sorry. Is that what we're – I thought we were talking about, like, squeezing a dollop of ketchup onto each fry. So you mean covering the French fries with the fr- – Covering the fries. No. Just a little, like, swirl. No. no here's here's what it is. So you if you are dipping or you are fry-by-fry fry applying ketchup – you are valuing control yes. above all other things. Yes, that's mine. When you yeah. do the squeeze and the random coverage, you are opening yourself up to the greater pleasure of a bite that has this wonderful surprise attached to it. No. So not ev- you're not having this even distribution of pleasure, but you're getting more because you've allowed yourself to be open to those possibilities. And I thought that was beautiful. I mean, listen, philosophically... I get what you're laying down there. 
I just think French fries is the wrong place to apply that philosophy. Because first of all, when you cover the French fries like that, they get soggy and French fries are disgusting soggy. They're not even that good to begin with. I'm still throwback to a year ago, stuck on the revisionist history where he said French fries got ruined when we stopped frying them in beef fat. I'm still stuck on that. I'm still waiting for everybody to go back to beef fat. That's the first thing. And that covering line, I mean, I guess you could stumble upon a ratio you would not have otherwise explored. Whatever. Fine. I'll tell you what changed my ketchup life is those amazing things they sell at Chick-fil-A that are like, you can either tear the top off and squeeze it off, or you can peel it up, and then you have like a contained dipping thing for on the go. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Why mm-hmm. did that take so long, human beings? That should no, have been a, a thing that was invented the second we invented ketchup. It's a good approach. It's a good approach for sure. Love it. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode. We're happy to be back. I feel better Me too. after having spent some time with you, Sarah. I missed you. I missed you. On the Nuance Life this week, we're going to have a conversation about teaching our children about America and literature and the fact that kids who are reading these days weren't born in 9-11. And what does that mean? It means we're old. That's what it means. That's part of what it means for sure. That's one component of it. (sighs) Between now and then, you can hear more about our 9-11 series and other current events on Patreon. We'll be back with you here on Friday. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram. <laughs>